Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This evening we're talking about being true to our word. And as I was preparing this uh, passage this week, it reminded me of a rather iconic movie. And so I've got a couple of clips from this movie. And there's a few questions when it comes up. Uh, the first one is, uh, what's the movie? Uh, mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, what's kind of the point going on? What do you notice? And then thirdly, would you behave any differently? Here's the clip. I want him to go number one in the draft. And I want him to play. He'll either be Denver or San Diego training up to take him. He'll go number one. Hell, I'll either surf or ski. I don't care. But <laughs> <laughs> Denver's where he should be. I'll give it everything. You know I don't do contracts. But what you do have is my word. And it's stronger than oak. sort of moved by your my word is stronger than oak thing. We signed an hour ago. <laughs> okay, does anyone remember the movie? Jerry Maguire. <laughs> so the movie's called Jerry Maguire, that's right. Uh, I've actually watched it again uh, last night for the first time in a long time. And it was actually a lot more sort of adult-oriented than I remember. And it's certainly not a, a movie to be watched with your younger children. Uh, but that first scene in particular is, is powerful, isn't it? You know, my word is you know, strong as oak. Uh, but also that the gut-wrenching sort of hypocrisy in that moment uh, when he turns around and, and signs with someone else. And it's easy for us to be judgmental uh, in that sort of situation. But I do wonder if we would do things any different. Uh, certainly as a parent, I reckon we can justify an awful lot in the name of loving and protecting our children. Uh, We're not usually quite so dramatic uh, when it comes to our promises, uh, but the point of the passage today is we shouldn't need to be, uh, that our yes should simply be enough. So let me pray as we get into this passage. Uh, Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that I might speak faithfully to it, that we might understand how you call us to live as your people. Help us have hearts to hear and the will to do what you call us to do. Amen. We're mid-series, so I thought it might be helpful to provide a little bit of a plot so far, uh, just in case you missed something or you've forgotten. And so we're working our way through what's called the Sermon on the Mount, 
And it began with Jesus challenging people about their idea of what it means to be blessed. And it was profoundly counterintuitive. So we naturally associate blessing with comfort and happiness and wealth. But Jesus says, um, blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn. And he's not talking about the downtrodden in life. He's talking about those people who deeply grieve their sin. And they're blessed because as they grieve their sin, they recognise their need for a saviour. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. But as they recognise who Christ is as saviour but also Lord, as they listen to how Christ wants us to live, we see that it is a better way, uh, that it fills, that it satisfies, that it secures our eternity. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how he fulfills the law. So the whole law pointed to Jesus and he fulfills the whole law. And that means that some things are fulfilled and complete. Uh, so we no longer uh, sacrifice animals for our sin because Jesus is the one true sacrifice. But some things are fulfilled and continue to look the same. So, for example, murder and adultery. Uh, they are wrong in the Old Testament and they continue to be wrong for us. And then Jesus goes on to speak about those things that are not just about our behaviours, but also about our attitudes, those thoughts and feelings and those emotions that sit behind those behaviours like murder and adultery and are serious uh, and they are sin and we need to see that and recognise that. And so this evening we're focusing on oaths and vows. So from our passage, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfil to the Lord the vows you have made. So, to be clear, an oath is swearing that my word is true by calling on someone greater than myself to be my guarantor. And a vow is simply a promise. So, to put an oath and a vow together in a sentence, I swear to God that I will pay you back the money. So, the oath part is the swearing to God bit, and the vow part is the commitment to pay back the money. Now, in the Old Testament, an oath sincerely declared was a good thing. Uh, so, for example, in Deuteronomy, Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God. So, an oath acknowledges that God is God. He is sovereign over all things. And we are accountable to God for all things. And the person making the oath is saying, my word can be trusted because I would never say anything that would dishonour my God. But here, Jesus is saying something new, something different, where he takes what is already known, but he actually ups the expectation. He says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Now, part of what Jesus is saying here is a reaction to what he sees in the culture around him. And we get a little bit of a glimpse of what was going on as we read the rest of the book of Matthew, and in particular in Matthew 23. So this is what it says. It says, Woe to you blind guides, 
You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. So the people are using oaths as a way of sort of building credibility and confidence and trust. But then they end up playing these sort of word games. You know, what does it really mean for me to keep my word? And as we go back to Matthew 23, we see this almost ridiculous framework as they try to work out what did and didn't constitute a binding oath. And so they seem to have made this distinction between what is God's versus you know, what is sort of affiliated with God by you know, degrees of separation. So in our passage, the temple was sort of more affiliated by God, so if you swear by the temple, uh, that's not binding. But the gold is the, uh, in the temple was God's possession, and because it's God's possession, it's God's, and therefore that oath counts. It becomes a ridiculous argument. Uh, Jesus uh, puts it like this. He says, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. You know, it takes legalism to the absolute absurd. Uh, for starters, it's absurd because everything belongs to God. It is God's throne. It, the earth is his footstool. This, it's the city of the great king. Uh, you would think the hair belongs to us, what we've got left. Uh, but even the colour of our hair is outside of our control. You can cover it over, but we cannot control what colour it is. So God is sovereign over everything, right down to the hair on our head. And we dishonour God when we make, you know, try to make some sort of arbitrary distinction between what is and isn't his. But the greater offence here isn't recognising God's sovereignty. It's failing to honour God with the clear intent of our words. Last week um, we were talking about marriage and divorce. And marriage is a good example of being true to our word. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he talks about marriage directly before he talks about promises. Because in marriage, we make a promise that we're committed to this person for life, in sickness and in health, for richer and poorer, for as long as we both shall live. And all of those promises are wonderful when things are going wonderfully. But when the wheels start to fall off, uh, when we no longer feel quite as in love as we did, uh, when we feel we spend more time bickering than actually talking, then I think we start to look at those promises in a different light. And we stop trying to look at how do we stay in this marriage and how, how do we stay committed to our promises, and perhaps we're tempted to start finding you know, viable, justifiable argument, viable arguments for getting out. Um, because this isn't just limited to marriage, is it? You know, we could do it with our work, you know, where we promise the world uh, to secure the business, but then you know, we go back to the fine print of the contract just to see how we can you know, squeeze every last little bit out of it. Or we appeal to our change of circumstances, and that happens, doesn't it? You know, life's dynamic, things change, but often those changes become the excuse more than the reason. So up to this point, Jesus has been talking specifically about oaths and vows. But it fits within that bigger commitment that God's people should be known and characterised by their truthfulness. So, for example, from the Psalms. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth, from their heart, who keeps an oath, 
even when it hurts, and does not change their mind. So, once again, Jesus is taking something that is true, that we should be truthful, but then he raises the bar. And so when it comes to what is sin, over the last couple of weeks we've seen, you know, sin isn't just murder, it's actually the emotion of anger that sits behind murder. There's no distinction between lust and adultery. And here there's no distinction between truthfulness and our promises. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So despite all the legalistic absurdity that was going on, there's sort of a general agreement that you should keep your promises. And it doesn't matter whether you're making that promise in marriage or whether you're making it as a business contract or you simply said yes to a party on Saturday night, our word is our word and our yes should be our yes. And our credibility shouldn't come from swearing to God It comes from being known as a follower of Christ. And as a follower of Christ, we are known to be people who are truthful. Or at least we should be. And just in case we're tempted to jump on the legalistic bandwagon, it doesn't matter whether you say a literal yes or no, or some derivative of that word, as anything that creates a reasonable expectation that we will do something. Yeah, so when you go to the mechanic and you ask them to fix your brakes, there's a reasonable expectation that he's going to do it in a reasonable amount of time, not just some dropping the car off in perpetuity. Uh, there's a reasonable expectation that he will do it, or she will do it, to a certain quality. Uh, and there's a reasonable expectation that it will cost a reasonable amount of money, which we're always disappointed about. <laughs> but that's how our expectations work, isn't it? The bottom line is we should say what we mean and we mean what we say. And adding anything more comes from the evil one. Because it's trying to sell ourselves as truthful using words and God's reputation to build that credibility instead of being people who are characterised by truthfulness. And the evil of that oath or that promise is then compounded if we fail to follow through on our word, and then we try to justify why that reasonable expectation isn't anything like what we've ended up delivering. And let's be clear about who's impacted in this whole thing. Firstly, it impacts our reputation, which is, to be honest, the least of our problems. But if we want people to trust us, then we need to be trustworthy, and part of trustworthiness is to be truthful. But more significantly, it impacts our relationship with God. Now, all the way through this sermon, Jesus emphasised the importance of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But he's also talked about the seriousness of our sin. And it's no different here. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how anger puts us at risk of hell. Uh, Last week, we read if our right hand causes us to stumble, we'd be better to cut it off than risk our whole body going to hell. And here our word is our word. And more or anything more or less is evil. So unrepentant evil is really the same as unrepentant sin. If we seek forgiveness and turn away from our sin, then we can be confident that God in his grace and mercy will forgive us. But if we don't, 
if we think we can keep on sinning and just presume on God's grace as if our sin doesn't matter, then we need to hear the warning. That what we're doing is evil and there is a genuine threat of us being separated from God. We're saved by grace. We can never earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. But we cannot assume that we simply get it. If we commit to following Jesus as our Saviour, we also commit to him as our Lord. But it's not just our salvation at stake. It's also the salvation of anyone who observes us. Now, as much as we would love to say, you know, do what I say and don't do what I do, or we'd love to say, you know, I'm a Christian, but look at Jesus, don't look at me. In reality, people look at us and they judge their perception of God on what we are like. And if they look at us and they go, wow, I can see that the, being a Christian really makes a difference, then that commends God, that gives honour to God. Uh, but equally, uh, if they look at us and we look just like the rest of the world or worse, then we bring dishonour to God. And you can understand why someone would say, why would I ever become a Christian if this is what a Christian looks like? And so our behaviour doesn't just impact us. Uh, it impacts how people see God. And even when we get it wrong, and we all get it wrong, how we get it wrong and how we respond to that, even being truthful when we acknowledge we get it wrong, is either going to commend Christ or dishonour Christ. So if our words are causing others to stumble, we need to feel the weight of that. And so let me just read one more passage. Uh, this, these are the words of Jesus from the book of Luke. Jesus says to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourself. And just to be clear, the little ones here is not about small children. It's simply those who do not follow Christ. And so when we fall short of truthfulness, we fall short of God's expectation for us, it has all sorts of implications. But the last one is, and perhaps even the most significant of all, we dishonour God. Now, in our culture, honour is not really a big part of our thinking. We don't really honour anyone, uh, let alone honouring God. But that's who we've been called to be as Christians. People who recognise that God is the creator of all things, the entire universe, inconceivably large, and yet cares about us. And so when we dishonour God, we contradict and we show contempt for God's word when we read, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So, how do we as Christians, if you're a Christian here tonight, become a person, or be a person who's characterised by truthfulness? I think part of truthfulness is clarity. And so we need to do everything in our power to establish that common understanding. And part of common understanding I think is clear and decisive language, which means for me, I reckon there's at least four words that should be banned in the English language. Okay, I, actually, I had to stop at four. There's quite a few more, but I'll go with four tonight, all right? Here's my top four that should be banned for communication. Probably, should, might, and try. So I will probably come, 
or I should be fine to come, or I might be able to come, or I will try to come, are all completely useless when it comes to communication. Because if you've invited to, if you've invited someone you know, over for dinner, what do you do with I might come? <laughs> do, do we just set a place, a table there? Do we provide food? Can I invite someone else? Uh, there's, no, there's no clarity there, is there? But with that also comes, it undermines that sense of confidence, uh, but also truthfulness. You know, it's convenient for us when we say it because it means we can leave our options open, you know, because something better might come up. In what are you cooking? It might be good, might not be good. Uh, that's all very fine for us, but, but it's not good for trust in our relationships and certainly not good for loving the other person. So if we said an explicit yes or we've created a reasonable expectation for, that we've said yes, then not only do we need to say it and be clear about it, we need to commit to it. Uh, to pick something close to home for our church community, uh, if, you are attending, if you are committed to a connect group or if you're committed to a youth group or cross-life kids, can I encourage you to honour that yes uh, for your sake uh, but also for the sake of everyone else in the group. Now, we all have different circumstances in life and you might need to be clear that you can't make it every week for whatever responsibility that you have. Uh, but the point is that we need to create a clear expectation and then we need to commit to doing it. Uh, our families always try to work on the principle that my first yes is my final yes. And if you're going to make an, ex- an exception, then it had better be exceptional. Uh, Now, I don't always live up to that principle. And often I'm very good at justifying why, you know, something is exceptional when it's perhaps not quite so exceptional as simply inconvenient. Uh, But it is still a good principle. It's a good principle for truthfulness. It's a good principle for building trust. And then finally, if our yes is going to be yes and our no is going to be no, that means we need to communicate truthfully which I don't think is the same as saying words that are true. Uh, So if I say, I'm sorry that I'm late to work, there was a car accident, those two statements might be true, but they might not be the truth. So I am sorry that I'm late to work in the sense that I'm now getting, you know, in this situation where I've got to justify why I'm late, so I'm sorry about that. And there genuinely was a car accident on the way to work. It was on the other side of the road, um, but and it probably has nothing to do with me being late. In fact, it was more me, you know, being in the surf a bit too long than actually the car accident on the side of the road. But I tend to leave out all of those inconvenient details because they don't really help my cause. And so we just are quite selective at times, aren't we? Where we emphasise the things that will help us to look good and we try to de-emphasise the things that make us look bad. Or we paint ourselves as the victim, and we justify why it wasn't my fault. If we can blame someone else, that's often quite convenient. But if nothing else, then we blame that one in a million event that no one could ever predict or foresee. Now, of course, there are times when we're going to get it wrong, and there are times when our circumstances will change and we can't deliver. But even then, part of truthfulness in that moment is acknowledging that we can't deliver. Uh, that we, that we uh, had committed to putting a report in on time at work and we just haven't given it the time that it needed. 
Or perhaps we need to acknowledge that we simply do not have the skill to do the task that we've been given to do. And if that's the case, then we need to acknowledge it, and we need to acknowledge it before someone holds us to account rather than after. Because once someone's held us to account, we all know that we've now undermined our reputation as truthful. And again, that impacts us, but it also impacts them and our perception as a Christian. Now, being truthful is risky. Uh, We risk missing out on the better opportunity. We risk embarrassment and humiliation. Sometimes we risk punishment. Uh, We risk awkward conversations. And I hate awkward conversations. And often, being less truthful can be convenient in the moment. In the short term, it might even be beneficial. But inevitably, our sin has a way of catching us up. Now, there's a saying in politics, it's not the crime that will kill you, it's the cover-up. And I think that's doubly true for us as Christians, when we fail to live up to the standard of our yes being yes and our no being no. So, as Christians, uh, let's say what we mean and mean what we say. And rather than trying to decide whether this will benefit us or make our life harder, let's simply decide how do we honour God with our words in this moment. And let me pray that we will do that. Dear Lord, as we've talked about honesty and truthfulness this evening, help us to be salt and light in the world. Give us the courage to be true to our word, even when it's hard, that people might see our truthfulness and glorify.